Hello everybody, Sean here. If you are hearing this, this means that I had to start the podcast in a really stupid way. You see, the way I wanted to start this podcast is, well, I looked on YouTube to see if there was any kind of song or something that had the phrase rip-off in it. I found this really cool song, actually. It was by this young girl named Nicole Starr. And unfortunately, I could not get permission to use it in time. So I can't use it. I have to do a really stupid intro for the show instead. But I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I think it's a really cool song, so give it a listen. Anyway, um, I guess um, here's the podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. This is Sean, and I'm so happy you could join me again. And, um, hey, first things first, I got to address some feedback I got. Uh, If you heard my previous episode, you heard my little mini lecture on working at a ice cream joint. I never have, but I still felt it necessary to give some advice. Specifically, I want to address the advice I gave to putting sprinkles on to a ice cream cone. And my whole thought was just as a reminder is that the real way to put sprinkles on an ice cream cone is to spread some sprinkles on a piece of wax paper or parchment paper or something to that effect, maybe even a cutting board really. And then roll the ice cream end of the ice cream cone into the sprinkles, getting a nice coating. That way the sprinkles get embedded nicely and it helps prevent some leakage, some drippage. And, um, comment I got from that was a guy named, um, let's see, what, what does it say? His name is, his name is Ferg, I believe Ferg. And he says, Jimmy's. I think, I do believe that is a New Jersey thing. They call them Jimmy's out there somewhere in the upper Northeast of the United States. And I, I always call them sprinkles. My wife calls them sprinkles, and she's from New Jersey, so I, I don't know. My mother, my mother, however, she calls them worms. She always called them worms. I don't know if that's a Chicago expression or what. Kind of like how she refers to relish as piccalilly, even if it's not technically piccalilly. Because I think piccalilly is a little bit more um, involved than your sweet pickle kind of relish or whatever. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, speaking of Ferg, I have to say this. It's been a while since I recommended a podcast. In all seriousness, I have to uh, recommend another Ferg podcast. He does like, what, eight podcasts? He does uh, the Atari 2600 game-by-game podcast. He does uh, Intari Visions. There's another one he does. It's called Please Stand By. It's, okay, it's kind of the Seinfeld of podcasts in that it's a podcast about nothing, really. (laughs) From what I can tell, almost every episode, I've only been listening for the past five or six episodes, but from what I can tell, at least in every episode, there's a little bit of classic video game discussion, a little bit of music discussion, so naturally, I kind of perk up and pay attention. But it is a fun podcast to listen to. I will link to it in the show notes. Ferg and his friend uh, Kevin Zerb, they are so entertaining to listen to. I was listening to their episode in which um, Kevin was recording himself taking a phone call from a scammer posing as the IRS 
man, I was practically screaming. You got to listen to the show. It's uh, again, it's called please stand by. And speaking of standing by, I've been standing by for months and what I've been standing by for has finally happened. The three new 7,800 homebrews from Atari age have arrived. Woohoo. So I now own complete boxed copies of crystal quest featuring Bentley bear time salvo and super circus Atari age and literally the day though. Okay. This is the crazy thing here. I got to talk about here. I thought I could have sworn that I gave Albert my home address for those cartridges. I might've been wrong. I might've given, I might've been wrong, but they should have arrived on Monday, July 3rd. I actually worked at home that day for other reasons, uh, not, not having to do with expecting those cartridges, but I worked from home. And so naturally I was expecting those things in the mail. So my wife is a teacher, so she was off too. So we were both home. I go downstairs, check the mail, and there's one piece of mail that I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting so soon, and I'll get to that in a minute, but no Atari age mail. And I was like, huh? But I did see one of those post office slips. It said, sorry, we missed you, which is kind of weird because my wife and I had both been home all day. We would have heard the door buzzer. We would have responded to it. So the carrier just basically decided to not bother with trying to get to us or something. I don't know. But we were both home. We were both inside. Either that or for that one moment when the mail carrier actually tried to ring our buzzer to buzz our buzzer, it didn't work. Ooh. Oh, man, there's something going on outside. Oh, boy. Hope everything's okay. But anyway, the certified mail, I couldn't track it because the number that was on there was written out illegibly and two of the numbers were scribbled out and I couldn't tell what they were writing. So I couldn't track it. I rode my bike over to the post office just to find out when I could pick it up. But here's the thing on the, sorry, we missed you slip. The checkbox for registered mail was checked. And I thought, Hmm, that's odd. So I posted on Atari age or, or was it Atari ages, Facebook page, one of the two. While everybody is posting about how they got the brand new homebrews, I was like, yeah, I was supposed to get them, but instead I got this registered mail thing that says, sorry, we missed you. So I'm kind of ticked off right now. And Albert said, yeah, I don't send those out registered though. So flash forward to Wednesday, Wednesday, I'm back at the office. And when I get there, there's a package for Atari age from me and it is Crystal Quest, Time Salvo, and Super Circus Atari Age, just like I expected, except I thought that I gave Albert my home address, but oh well. At least I got him, and then I'm thinking, wait a minute, what was that registered mail? And I'm freaking out, because why do people send registered mail? Well, because they want to sue you, because they want to evict you or something. And I'm thinking, what is going on? What Did I forget to submit some tax forms or something? And... I don't know. So something finally occurred to me. There was a number printed on the registered mail slip. So I texted my wife. I said, Hey, send me the number that's on that slip. And she did. And I looked it up and then I figured out what it was. Judging by the message that I got from the USPS.com site in the tracking section, 
it was something that I had ordered a long time ago and had just received that I totally forgot about. And uh, it's Atari 7800 related, but I can't say any more about it at this time. So huge sigh of relief. I got that. Oh, and on Monday, the other thing I got in the mail that was something that I had ordered, it was homebrews from Good Deal Games. There was a homebrew on Good Deal Games that I had never heard of. And I know from Good Deal Games that they can run out of supplies pretty quickly. So it's like, you know what? I'm going to jump on this right now. And uh, it's a game called Shoot the UFO 2015. And it's made by Breck Brixius. And apparently he did post the work in progress on Atari Age. And I just kind of missed it somehow. So, oh, well, (laughs) at least I got it. I have the cartridge now. And when I placed the order, uh, Michael over at Good Deal Games, he upsold me the ET book cart Atari 7800 version. I was like, yeah, I'll take that too. (laughs) So it was a little bit more money than I was going to spend, but it's like, you know what? I'm eventually going to get that thing anyway. (laughs) So I got it and I got, I'm I'm not going to talk about it in great detail right now. I'm just going to say I was fascinated with that book cart. I really, really, really was, but that's all I'm going to say about that. So I got five new homebrew games during the week of July 4th. And it was, it was great. It's absolutely great to uh, be an Atari 7800 owner. <laughs> and by the way, speaking of good deal games, uh, Michael at good deal games, he wrote a book. It's called downright bizarre games, video games that crossed the line. And it does have some Atari 7800 coverage in it. And, um, something that I should also mention If you order it from Good Deal Games, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, and you mention the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, Good Deal Games will take $5 off, ship it for free, and not only that, but Michael will also personalize and autograph it for you. So again, it's called Downright Bizarre Games, video games that cross the line. And again, I will link that in the show notes. Oh, one more thing that I have to say about the 7800. Uh, Back during Midwest Gaming Classic, while I was there, I tried to copy some ROMs onto my Mateos 7800 16-1 multi-cart, and they wouldn't work. And I don't know why. I I would go home and copy them from my iMac, and they worked. But on my MacBook Pro that I had with me, they didn't work. And I just figured out why. There's something with Mac OS Sierra that isn't playing nice with the Mateos cart. I emailed Juan Mateos about that. I said, hey, I just upgraded both of my Macs to Sierra, and suddenly they're no longer writing properly to the cart. And he wrote back and said, you know what? I just upgraded too. I'm looking for a solution myself. I'll let you know if I find one. Well, as of this recording, I still haven't heard from him. But I did find kind of a workaround. I mean, one obvious workaround is if you really want to do this, boot into Windows from your Mac and use that instead. I couldn't get Ubuntu to copy things over properly, but Windows did. So just out of curiosity, I tried booting into the recovery partition. All Macs using one of the last three or four operating systems now have a recovery partition. So if you screw up your installation, you could just boot into the recovery partition and reinstall that way. But I tried that. I booted into the recovery partition and used the terminal to copy files over, and that actually worked. There, it's more than that. I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a video 
I'm going to do a step-by-step video on booting into the Mac recovery partition and copying files over to the Mateos cart. It's not the most intuitive thing in the world, but it's also not the hardest thing in the world. I'll post it on the YouTube channel, Homebrew7800. So that's what I had to say about my 7800 stuff. One other thing I wanted to talk about before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode is you'll hear me at the end of the show talk about how when I recorded this episode, Keith Robinson had just died. Well, that's mostly true. I recorded the vast majority of this episode concurrently when I recorded Space Duel. I kind of did both at the same time. The only thing that was not from before is what you are hearing right now, this little intro, because I always do those last just so I can kind of impart the latest news if there is any news, such as, say, Atari Box. I have no idea what's in the Atari Box. There we go. All done with that talk. But <laughs> At the time, Keith Robinson had just died. Since I already had those two episodes in the can, that the next episode after that, which uh, is going to be episode 16, that I was going to talk about Meteor Shower, which was highly influenced by the Intellivision game Astro Blast. Well, I'm also going to talk about Shoot the UFO 2015, because it is also inspired by Astro Blast. So I figured, hey, this will be one of the few times I'm talking about more than one homebrew title. So anyway, this time I'm only talking about one homebrew title, and that's Cinematronics Ripoff. So let's learn a little bit about the game, its history, how to play it, and all the other fun stuff you need to know. Ripoff was released in 1980 by Cinematronics. It was designed and programmed by Tim Skelly, who also designed Warrior, a two-player one-on-one medieval-themed sword-fighting game, which was a vector game as well. Armor Attack, another vector game, which also received the Bob DiCrescenzo Atari 7800 homebrew treatment and therefore will be discussed in a later episode. And he also did Star Castle, which was originally going to be ported to the Atari 2600, but when that port happened, it evolved into Yar's Revenge. Later, Tim Skelly worked on Reactor as an independent contractor for Gottlieb. And those are just a few select examples of what Tim Skelly worked on. He's done many other games, both home and arcade, over the next few decades. Ripoff was... Apparently, the first video game to use artificial intelligence behavior called flocking, which means that there's a group of enemies or characters or whatever that exhibit specific behaviors when they're in a group, as opposed to when they work individually. Now, let's learn a little bit about Cinematronics. Cinematronics was founded in El Cajon, California in 1975 by Jim Pierce, Dennis Parte, I believe it might be Part, I don't know, but it's P-A-R-T-E, and Gary Garrison. Jim was in charge of the business, while Dennis and Gary were just investors. I don't know if just is really an appropriate word. It's like, oh, just investors are, I don't know. But anyway, the first game that they produced was a Pong clone that was released in 1975. And the next game 
that Cinematronics put out was called Flipper Ball in 1976, and it was kind of a breakout game. Um, from the pictures that I've seen of it, I'm guessing it's kind of in the same vibe as perhaps GB or Bomb B. Uh, I mentioned those in a previous episode about Crazy Brick, so if you want more information, check out that episode. Uh, one source that I found says that Flipper Ball was a clone of a game by a company called Centauri, but I've been able to find any information about a video game company that has that name. So if anybody knows, homebrew78 at fab4it.com. Hint, hint. Another source that I was using for this episode observed that Flipper Ball is a clone of a Chicago coin game from 1973 called TV Pin Game. You may remember that I talked about Chicago Coin in episode four, talking about Frenzy. Chicago Coin kind of evolved into Stern. But for what it's worth, I talked about how I saw a picture of Flipper Ball. I saw a picture of the cabinet. It's a cocktail style cabinet, and it's shaped like a giant spool, I guess. It's uh, you know, like the bachelor style coffee table. It, it looks pretty cool, actually. I really, really like it. Uh, but at this point, Dennis Part, or is it Parte? Because he likes to Parte, I don't know. And uh, Gary Garrison, they had sold their shares of Cinematronics to a guy named Tom Papa Stroud. And Tom hired a lot of other immediate family members to work for the company. So Cinematronics had kind of a family atmosphere. What Cinematronics had been doing was making clones of existing games. I mean, sure, doing that was paying the bills, but being in a fast-moving, innovative video game industry, Cinematronics wanted to have an original game. So the first truly original concept that became a video game for Cinematronics was 1977's Embargo, in which the player controlled a ship that would lay water mines down that hopefully the opponent would detonate. However, Embargo was a flop, except in Florida, which, um, I don't know, it might not have been a coincidence that it was a success in Florida, because Embargo involved a map of two islands, one of which had a strong resemblance to Cuba. But sales in just one state do not a success make, so Cinematronics had to come up with another new game, and fast. So what was that new game? Well, to tell you, we have to flash back to 1968. A young Larry Rosenthal was on a college visit at MIT, he was considering attending MIT for his upcoming freshman year of college, and he happened upon a game called Space War. That's S-P-A-C-E-W-A-R exclamation point, no space. In the game Space War, there are two spaceships that battle each other, and as they were battling each other, they were gradually being pulled into the gravity of a sun in the middle of the screen, and they had to thrust away from it. The 1962 Space War game, which was developed by MIT graduates to run on a Digital Equipment Corporation PDP-1 mainframe, that intrigued young Larry. The game had since been a huge hit, and as such, was ported to many other computers. But Larry had an idea for making a version of Space War that would run on a fairly inexpensive hardware platform and used efficient programming. In fact, that idea became the basis of his MIT master's thesis. In 1973, Larry started turning that idea into a reality. So come December 1976, he actually had a finished product, which he slightly renamed Space Wars, and he put that Space Wars game 
into an arcade that a friend of his ran in or around Berkeley, California. I couldn't get a definitive answer as to whether it was actually in Berkeley or near Berkeley. But regardless, Larry dropped the game off and then he took a six-day trip to Boston. And when he got back from Boston, he found that Space Wars was so popular that in just those six days, it had made $500. And uh, think about that. Assuming a quarter per play, that's 2,000 plays. So Larry Rosenthal packed up a demonstration model of Space Wars and um, another game, I think it was a Lunar Lander clone, but he shopped those games around to various companies only to be continually turned down. And interestingly, one of the companies that turned him down was Atari. And one theory for why Atari turned him down was that in 1971, Atari happened to release its own Space War clone and called it Computer Space. And it was a flop. However, Larry did get the attention of Cinematronics, who was looking for a game to pull themselves out of the slump that I kind of talked about before. Cinematronics made a deal with Larry, and Larry reportedly wanted an unheard of 50% cut of the profits. His royalty actually ended up being $50 per unit sold. And keeping that in mind, here's where you can have some fun doing some math to try to figure out how rich Larry got from the sales of Space Wars especially in 1977 money. Space Wars was demonstrated at the AMOA show, and uh, AMOA is the Amusement and Music Operators Association. So it was demonstrated at the AMOA show in 1977, and it sold a huge number of units. Different reports will say different things, but basically it's somewhere between 10,000 and 30,000 so multiply that by $50, and uh, that's a pretty good chunk of change. And what's interesting is that Cinematronics had been looking for an original game, so what happens? They have a success with essentially another cloned game, so go figure. Anyway, going back to Atari now, Atari had offered $5 million to license Space Wars from Cinematronics, but Cinematronics not only refused that offer, but they also later sued Atari for patent violation when Asteroids was released. But nonetheless, it bugged Larry Rosenthal that he wasn't getting the money that he wanted. So while he was still collecting royalties on Space Wars, he decided to break away from Cinematronics and he formed a new company in Sunnyvale, a company that he called Vector Beam. And in that process, Larry took with him some of the technology that he used to make his games, including the instructions on how to program the proprietary units that Cinematronics had, which meant that the people who stayed at Cinematronics no longer had that information, so they actually had to reverse engineer their own machines to figure out how they worked so they could continue making more games. But as you can imagine, as a result of this, um, well, let's call it what it is, corporate theft, Cinematronics sued Larry Rosenthal. But what's interesting is that as a result of that lawsuit, Cinematronics ended up buying Vector Beam with Larry Rosenthal reportedly walking away with a seven-digit check. So he made out like a freaking bandit. So after all that dust settled, Cinematronics continued making primarily vector graphics games, if not exclusively vector graphics games, over the next several years, and a typical production run was 5,000 units per game. They sold 5,000 units, bam, they made their goal. So 1983 comes around, and, well, people were growing weary of vector graphics games. So Cinematronics decided, you know what, 
let's try Laserdisc games. Those are going to be the next big thing. The company's first Laserdisc game was the famous Dragon's Lair, which was kind of a mixed blessing for Cinematronics. On one hand, Dragon's Lair sold 5,000 units an entire run, but on the other hand, there were problems. First off, gamers were figuring out pretty quickly how to beat the game, so Dragon's Lair didn't see a lot of repeat business from many players. Second, Dragon's Lair used the Pioneer PR7820 Laserdisc player, and that was one of the very first Laserdisc players on the market. And just by the nature of it being such an early, early model, that meant that there were a lot of problems in it that hadn't yet been found. So put those two together, not getting a lot of repeat play and having a primitive Laserdisc player that would break down a lot, you can pretty much tell that... Uh, even though it sold a lot, um, Dragon's Lair wasn't really that much of a success. So in hopes of recovering from the damage that Dragon's Lair had done, Cinematronics released Space Ace, which was another Laserdisc game. But arcade owners were kind of reluctant to buy Space Ace because of the problems they remembered having with Dragon's Lair. But in the meantime, Cinematronics had a new president. His name was Fred Frukamoto, and Fred decided that Cinematronics should be making some raster graphics games, as opposed to vector graphics, so he bought 5,000 game boards. Something about the number 5,000 with Cinematronics. But he bought those game boards from a Japanese distributor, and rumor has it that he received some kind of a kickback for purchasing those boards. Problem, though. Programming instructions were not included, just some schematics. So that meant that, yet again, Cinematronics had to reverse engineer their own boards. And while they were at it, they wrote a programmer's manual as they discovered how to use them. So Cinematronics has these new Japanese boards, and they produced and released games such as Naughty Boy, Jack the Giant Killer, and Zizix, among others. And on top of that, Cinematronics felt, well, you know what? We can probably produce more cabinets and ergo make more money if we had a bigger facility to manufacture them with. But think about how often you've heard of, say, Naughty Boy or Zizix. How many times have you seen those games in an arcade? You go to a retro vintage arcade today. Are you going to see those games? Well, you can probably guess how lucrative these new ideas were. So in or around 1984, Cinematronics filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. In 1987, a video game company called Trade West, based out of Corsicana, Texas, bought Cinematronics and renamed it the Leland Corporation after Trade West co-founder Leland Cook. Trade West installed a guy named John Lowe as president of Leland Corporation because he had prior successes as an executive at the American division of SNK. If you've never heard of SNK, they made a little thing called the Neo Geo. In April 1994, Trade West was taken over by WMS, which itself was the result of a merger between Williams and Midway, and in turn, Trade West became a division of WMS that was renamed Williams Entertainment. So that's a history of Cinematronics right there. And yeah, I did say earlier that Tim Skelly was the designer and programmer of Ripoff. And I told you a lot about Larry Rosenthal, who didn't have much, if anything, to do with Ripoff. But don't worry, we will give Tim Skelly his due time when we talk about Armor Attack in a future episode. So 
let's talk about how to play ripoff. Now, here's the thing about ripoff. It is not the most common game in the world. In fact, I had never heard of it until the 7800 Homebrew was released. And yes, I mentioned in a previous episode, at least one previous episode, that I used to have a Vectrex, and even then I never heard of Ripoff when I had that Vectrex. And since it's such an uncommon game, and from what I understand, not the most sold item in the Atari Age store, and I have a feeling not everybody listening is familiar with it, so a little bit of explanation is in order. The premise of Ripoff is that you control a tank and there are eight triangular fuel canisters in the middle of the screen. Your job is to prevent pirate ships from stealing the fuel canisters. The game is over when all of your fuel canisters are gone, are stolen, and you can prevent pirate ships from stealing your fuel canister by either shooting the pirate ships or colliding into them. And if you collide into them, then there's going to be a little bit of a delay, maybe a second or two, before you're given another tank. There are no lives, so to speak. Again, the game ends when all your fuel canisters are gone. In the original arcade version, there are one and two player cooperative or competitive games. The way the game works is that there are eight waves. And in each wave, up to three enemies will attempt to steal fuel canisters. And they will try to prevent you from preventing them. They will shoot at you. And when they steal a fuel canister, what will happen is they will tether the fuel canister to their own ships. And um, it looks a lot like the tethered boat of Space Duel, actually. At that point, though, the pirate ships are not going to shoot at you. Any pirate ship that is actually carrying one of your canisters will not shoot at you, but you can shoot at it. And if you destroy a pirate ship that is in the process of stealing your fuel canister... The fuel canister will be saved and left behind right where the pirate ship was destroyed, which adds another challenge because now you'll have some fuel canisters in the middle and maybe a fuel canister or two closer to the edge of the screen. Your tank is destroyed if it's shot by a laser from a pirate ship or if it makes contact with a pirate ship. The game will cycle over six waves, and as you go through the six waves, the pirate ships move at a faster speed each time. When you finish the sixth wave, you start over on the first wave, but the pirate ships start moving at faster speeds, and their speeds max out once they are equally fast on all six waves. On the original arcade game's control panel, it was kind of similar to what Space Duel would eventually have. That is, Player 1's controls on the right, and Player 2's controls on the left. And just like with the Asteroid series, all the controls were buttons. There was a button to rotate left, a button to rotate right, a button to thrust, a button to fire, and a start button. Each player had his or her own start button. So that is a basic rundown on how to play Ripoff. That's the game right there. Now let's take a look at the 7800 version of Ripoff. We'll talk about the evolution of that homebrew. As I had mentioned prior, Ripoff is yet another homebrew by Bob DiCrescenzo, who goes by Pac-Man Plus on Atari Age. The first appearance of Ripoff was on March 23rd, 2012, when Bob posted some screen caps, some ROM files that were 16K. That's a small size for an Atari 7800 ROM. And in that post, there was also a picture of a labeled cartridge. 
The game was almost complete. The only thing that was missing was a avoidance routine in the programming, which has become known among ripoff fans as the don't bump your buddies theory. Well, what does that mean? It means that, well, as in the original arcade game, to save on code, there was no artificial intelligence that would prevent the enemy's tanks from colliding with the player's tank. Keep in mind what I said before, that when the enemy and player's tanks collide, the enemy tank is destroyed along, well, along with the player's tank. So you would think, here I am trying to steal a fuel canister. I'd better avoid that player's tank so I don't get destroyed. Well, that artificial intelligence is not there. However, there is artificial intelligence that will prevent the pirate ships from colliding with each other. So that's interesting. I don't know if any other games do that. Um, I'm sure there must be. I just can't think of them right now. But also at this point, still on March 23rd, 2012, the game was not 100% arcade accurate. Because remember what I said, when the fuel canisters are being stolen, they are actually tethered to the enemy tanks. You see a little line connecting them. Instead, though, at this point, the canisters in the 7800 version, and this point in the development process, they were kind of placed underneath the enemy tanks as they were being carried away. Also, because each object on the screen... The player tanks, the pirate ships, the fuel canisters, each object was its own sprite. And due to graphical limits on how many sprites could be displayed at once, there was a little bit of flicker. But later on in the same day, the don't bump your buddies logic that I talked about was implemented, so Bob posted a new ROM. But one thing he didn't realize is that he forgot to test the ROM without having a high score cartridge, a high score device attached to his machine, so he tried again, did some tests without it, made some tweaks, and posted a new ROM that should work with or without a high score cartridge. The next day, March 24th, Bob posted another ROM file, and this time the game will auto detect whether you're using a 7800 controller or a 2600 controller. So that way it can work with either single button controller or double button controller. On March 27th, so a few days later, an Atari age user going by the handle Hammer25, that's H-A-M-M capital R-25, he posted about a buggy found in which you can kind of place a suicide bomb, as it were, that would prevent enemy tanks from taking one of the fuel canisters for several levels. So what would happen is there would be a certain tank on the screen and if you did things right, then from that point on, I don't exactly know how this was done, but from a certain point on, if you did something right, then whenever a pirate ship would approach that fuel canister, that pirate ship would be destroyed. But just a tad over an hour after that post, Bob posted an updated ROM that fixed that problem or at least minimized it so it didn't really happen frequently. March 29th, Mark Oberhäuser posted pictures of his box design. And it doesn't seem that there was a heck of a lot of work that needed to be done. Bob might have been correct on March 23rd when he said that there wasn't much left to do because we didn't hear anything more about the game until April 10th when Bob started accepting orders for the cartridge. He charged $25 a pop plus $2 shipping in the U.S., $4 everywhere else. In that same post in which he invited orders, Bob also extended a thank you to Atari Age user Pac-Man Red for doing the player and enemy graphics. April 12th, Bob posted a PDF version of the game manual. 
But something interesting happened on April 28th because Jinx found a bug in which during a two-player game, if you used a two-button controller, one player's controls would actually drive the other player's tanks, but the fire button would actually work on that player's own tank. Too bad this is an audio podcast where I'd have a flowchart you could follow. Anyway, Bob remembered actually seeing and fixing that bug earlier in the development, so he thought that perhaps one of the updates he did might have accidentally reintroduced that bug. So, being the faithful guy that he is, Bob had asked that anybody who was using a two-button controller and got the cart to please return the cart for a replacement once he got the bug fixed. Didn't take him long to get the bug fixed, though, because just a few days later, on May 2nd, he posted an updated ROM file that had the bug wiped out. Ripoff has since been made available for sale with a manual via the Atari Age store, and I will link that in the show notes. As of right now, Atari Age is also including a free ripoff magnet, quote-unquote, while supplies last. And of course, you can order Mark Oberhäuser's box from his website, and I will put a link in the show notes to that. And of course, I have to make this disclaimer. If you're in the United States, you cannot use the order form to order the box. You have to send a separate email to Mark Oberhäuser requesting it. So now that I talked about the actual evolution of ripoff on the 7800, let's check out how the gameplay works on the 7800. The Atari 7800 version of Ripoff lets you choose from three different skill levels. In the easy skill level, you start with one pirate ship per round and one round per wave. On the normal skill level, you start with two pirate ships per round and one round per wave, assuming it's a one-player game. But on a two-player game, you get three pirate ships per round and two rounds per wave. If you choose the hard difficulty level, you start with three pirate ships per round, and you have two rounds per wave, and you only get four canisters to defend, half as many as you get in the other difficulty settings. And um, by the way, I should mention that the arcade version also allows you to choose the number of canisters you have, except you're allowed to choose up to 16 on that. Remember how I mentioned before that you actually would see a tether in the arcade version, but when Bob started working on Ripoff, he didn't have the tether. The pirate ships just kind of carried the fuel canister under when they stole the fuel canisters. Well, that's how it ended up being in the final product, too. Also, you don't have an option of competitive versus cooperative in the Atari 7800 Ripoff. It's only competitive mode. And just like with the arcade game in two-player mode, you actually start with three pirate ships on the screen. For controls, you use the joystick controller. Move left to rotate left, right to rotate right. If you have a single-button controller, you push up to thrust. If you have a double-button controller, then one of the buttons will thrust you, and pushing up will do nothing. Uh, Which button? I'm not really sure. Um, Because I use third-party controllers, I don't use the pain line controller. (laughs) But one of the buttons will be a fire button, the other will be a thrust button. The scoring is pretty simple. You get either 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60 points per pirate ship destroyed, depending on which type of pirate ship you destroy. There are six different designs, and the points depend on what design they are. From what I can tell, the design of pirate ship that's on the screen depends on which wave you're on. 
And of course, the different pirate ship designs all have different levels of aggressiveness toward you. Your score, by the way, only appears between waves. It is not constantly on the screen. So unless you're good at calculating your score in your head while you play the game, you'll have no idea what your score is until the wave's over. Every so often, one of the rounds is going to be designated as a bonus round, and you will not know if it's a bonus round until it actually happens. According to the arcade version's operation manual, a bonus round happens when it is determined that enough points have been scored. How many are enough? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't say. But the best I've been able to determine from my own playing is that the first bonus round happens after you score 600 points, and the next one, the second one, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 or 1,600 points. At least that's how it works in the arcade game. It looks like the 7800 version, you don't have to score that much to trigger a bonus round. It looks like maybe it's about half that much. I think my first round that I saw was after like 300, and then the next one was after 1,000. I think that's how it worked. I'm not really good at this game, so I've never seen a third bonus round. But in a bonus round, you get an extra 10 points tacked onto your score after the bonus round times whatever bonus round it is. If it's the first bonus round, you get an additional 10 points added onto your score when the round is over. If it's the second bonus round, you get an additional 20, etc. And I like to talk about high scores. The highest scores that I've seen for the Atari 7800 ripoff are, everybody say it with me now, Wilson Oyama, also known as Oyama Family on Atari Age. I believe he did this through emulation, he usually does. His easy highest score is 3,150, normal 7,670. Interesting that he got more than double his score on a harder setting. But on the hard setting, he scored 2,470. So you can see this is not a high-scoring game. So there you have it. There you have ripoff on the 7800 in a nutshell. And of course, as I always do, I put out a call for some feedback on Ripoff. I heard from Jinx on Atari Age, who says, The game is a frantic one- or two-player vector game. You kill the enemy tanks from ripping you off. There are a few different enemies, and the action gets faster till you finally get ripped off. There are different strategies of camping on your stuff you're trying to protect and shoot incoming tanks. Or shoot at the stuff you're trying to protect as the tanks come in and blast them or maybe roam around shooting and killing frantically. If you are killed, you better hope you respawn in time to stop them from taking out your junk. My early cart has the two-player glitch that one of your player one buttons controls the player two movement and firing. This was corrected on the newer carts maybe after the first 25 or so. All in all, it is a fun game to play with cool graphics. It's one of those, no, 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 you SOB, yell at the screen games. Uh, thanks, Jinx. That was a great review. Great review. And yeah, I, I totally, oh, d d especially the arcade game. The arcade game is maddening. One thing that I love about the 7800 ripoff is that it does give you a fighting chance to last a few rounds. Thanks again, Jinx. That was great. Save 2600 had a feedback that kind of covers both Space Duel and Ripoff. Space Duel I covered in the previous episode. He says, another couple of indispensable homebrews, if you ask me. 
glad these vector gems made their way to the 7800 pink smiley face with hearts. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, ripoff was my, I never heard of ripoff until this homebrew came out because it's not the most common game in the world. And you heard me mention previous episode, assuming you listened that, uh, I'd never heard of space duel until the, uh, uh, 7,800 homebrew came out way back when, what, 10 years ago. I, I don't know where my head was. I'd heard of asteroids. I've heard of asteroids deluxe. I'd never heard of space duel. And yes, I have seen the cover of the who album that has it on there. I just never really paid attention, but Thanks, save 2600. And that's going to do it for episode 15 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. My thoughts on Ripoff? Well, my thoughts on Ripoff are the same for both the arcade version and the 7800 Homebrew version. Ripoff makes me angry. It is so frustrating. I'm constantly bombarded. I always get shot. I quite frequently, I get shot from somebody behind me when I can't even see him coming on the screen. And when they take away the canisters, I get so frustrated that I can't aim right. And I end up missing my shots and it's really angering. Yet I keep going back and saying, let me try again. Let me try. And I will sit for hours playing ripoff. I actually went to galloping ghost once just to play ripoff and I was doing the same thing it was so frustrating yet I kept playing it over and over and over and over for a long time yeah it's a frustrating game but at the same time I love it I love ripoff so much I really do it because it's such a challenging game it actually does challenge you to play again play a game try to do better try to do better and that's exactly the kind of game you want seriously play this game if you can afford to please buy it Go to the Atari Age store, get a copy. If your local arcade has it, go over and play it. It is seriously, it is both frustrating and a lot of fun at the same time. And I got to tell you, the 7800 version is noticeably easier than the arcade version. The arcade version is really super hard. So good luck with that. In fact, you know what? I'm going to see if I can figure out where ripoff is. For what I can tell, there are only six arcades on Orcade.com, A-U-R-C-A-D-E.com. Only six locations that actually have ripoff. I'm actually surprised there are that many. Of course, Fun Spot in Laconia, New Hampshire has it. I already said Galloping Ghost has it. That's uh, in Brookfield, Illinois, just, um, just south of Chicago, not far from Midway Airport. Grinker's Grand Palace in Eagle, Idaho. That's a big place. I'd love to get there and check that place out. I've heard so much about it. Hyperspace in Lakewood, Colorado has it. Pinball PA in Aliquippa, or is it Aliquipa? I don't know. Pennsylvania. And the Lost Arcade in Rodeo, New Mexico has it. So if you live in any of those areas, check it out. Um, I'd love to know if Arcade Club has it over in England. That'd be interesting to know. In fact, let me check. Okay, at least as of this recording, Ripoff is not listed on Arcade Club's website. They do have a lot of interesting, they do have a lot of rare ones, though. You don't really see that much. They they do have a pretty impressive collection. If I ever get to England, which I really want to do sometime, I'm definitely going to try to check that place out. But 
still ripoff, fun, fun, fun game. And it's highly underrated and understandably because there weren't that many made. And understandably that the Atari Age store apparently hasn't sold a heck of a lot of those. But go there and get it. Go and get it. For the next episode, um, I'm recording this segment of this episode not long after Keith Robinson died. So even though he didn't really design it, I would like to, for next episode, episode 16, talk about Meteor Shower, which is based on an Intellivision game. And in a rare exception to the one game per episode rule, also going to talk about Shoot the UFO 2015. In the meantime, thank you everybody for listening. And of course, I want to thank right now those who have sponsored this podcast via Patreon. Thank you, Richard Grounds, Richard Valdez, Jimmy G, Gray Defender, and Ed Ladden Controllers. And if you would like to be added to that list, go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. You can also reach me via email at homebrew78 at fab4, that's the number four, by the way, it.com. I might have to change that to a Gmail just to, so I don't have to keep specifying the number four. But any thoughts on the podcast or whatever, go right ahead, send me an email. You can see the show notes for this and prior episodes at homebrew78.fab4it.com. My Twitter handle is homebrew78. And my YouTube channel is homebrew7800. But in the meantime, please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. Thank you for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you soon.